0: Radio.
1: Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V-Radio. Hello, and welcome to this very early edition of V-Radio. Today on the show we have Tammy Strobel. Uh, some of you, uh, did I say your name correctly?
0: Yeah, you did.
1: Okay, excellent. Uh, some <laughs> of you may remember a show I did previously where I was reading an article about some of the things that Tammy was doing, uh, living, I guess, what you would call a minimalist lifestyle, um, generally, I begin the show by asking, uh, you know, my guests, go ahead and introduce yourself. And uh, while you're, you know, telling us your story, um, explain to us also what got you thinking outside the box to bring you to this direction.
2: Wow. Well, my name is Tammy Strobel, and I blog at rowdykittens.com. Um, basically, I started my downsizing journey about five years ago, and during that process, we we shed a lot of excess stuff, um, paid off our debt, sold our cars, and just—I—it kind of um, everyone's been asking me, like, well, what prompted this uh, big change in your life? And I had started reading a lot of uh, Derek Jensen's books, and I stumbled across a really cool video of Dee Williams's teeny tiny house on YouTube, and um, those two things really just got me thinking about how I live my life and sustainability in general. So that's a, kind of a quick summary. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, um, so like uh, was there any like perhaps any catalyst event or not, nothing like that that maybe made you think about it? Or was it just reading the books then was kind of the catalyst?
2: Um, I, I really think that reading the books and just talking with my partner, Logan, about downsizing in general um It wasn't like one specific thing. It was kind of a process over time. And also, I was really dissatisfied with the way my career was going. I had started out in the investment management field, and it really was not a good fit for me. Um, I didn't really like the way the company was going, and it, it just didn't jive with my ethics. So I transitioned into social service work, and now I'm running my own small business. So... Just kind of a combination of things, and, you know, I had always considered myself very liberal, but didn't really feel like I was living a very sustainable life, if that makes sense.
1: Okay. Well, actually, it does make sense. Um, You know, I I know I asked you to go ahead and, um, at one point anyway, check out the Venus Project, Um, and one of the reasons why I was interested in having you as a guest is that, Um, we kind of tend to, uh, we talk about a world, actually, um, where most people are living the way you are. And we often have to talk to people because they, you know, we believe that uh, resources could be, you know, pulled together for the good of all mankind. And the one thing they always say is, oh, well, somebody will always want, you know, something, you know, that they can't have or they'll want 100 televisions or, you know, they invent these, like, crazy straw man, you know, theories. And what you're doing basically proves that in fact not only will that not really make them happy that uh you know that in fact you know it's 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 even probable that you know they would be far happier without 100 televisions now i guess if you want to just break down the the basic fundamentals of of what it is that you're doing for my audience
2: sure well essentially we are living a life that's small i mean we live in a small apartment we don't have a lot of personal possessions um We just keep it really simple. Uh, We don't own cars. We do rent cars occasionally and, you know, share with friends if we have to make an out-of-town trip or, you know, take the train and things like that. But by living with less, we were able to pay off our debt and really be healthier. Like, looking at me now versus five years ago, I'm a lot fitter, I've lost weight, and just, like, I don't know if I can really explain it, but I just feel emotionally lighter. I'm not so weighed down with stress, and I feel like that's really important. And I was reading through some of the stuff on the Venus Project website, and it's really fascinating, and I think um, a really cool way to re-envision society and that, like you were saying, you can live with less and be happy. You don't need 100 televisions to live a good life.
1: Yes, and that's, you know, that's absolutely the case. And, um, you know, in addition to that, uh, you know, when, when you're talking about how you don't need all these items, and I understand what you mean because I've kind of already lived a minimalist uh, lifestyle most of my life. I mean, I used to joke about it. Like I could fit every object that I own inside a single, like, television box. You
0: know?
1: <laughs> and people would be like, how can you do that? I'm like, I just, I don't need all that stuff. And I remember reading an article a long time ago uh, about cleaning up your house. And in the article, it talked about how in many cases, there are, you know, like the pack rat-ism, so to speak, that people have mm-hmm. so much stuff and then they go over it when they're cleaning and they really think they need it. And the article just said, you know, don't bother that. Don't bother with that. You know, just get rid of that stuff. Because if, if it was important in your day-to-day life, then you would be using it every day. You know, and there are exceptions to this, obviously, like you don't use your plunger every day. But, right. but you have so much junk in your possession And you don't think about it—that you really don't use every day—and that's, you know, in the Venus Project suggested society, we talk about how there would be less emphasis on private property and more Mm -hmm. emphasis on public property. Which isn't Mm -hmm. to say we're not going to go round up everybody's private property and take it for them, but
2: you know, rather, you know, a
1: society that we would envision would focus on creating things like, you know, public access to cars, public access to bikes, public access Mm -hmm. to pools and recreation centers and things of that nature so that you don't have to own all that stuff nobody in the venus project society would stop you from owning those things if you wanted to but Mm -hmm. you know as peter joseph explains it you know if you want to fill up your garage with golf clubs and you know a bunch of other junk that you're going to use maybe once a month if you're lucky then that's that's on you but Mm -hmm. you know we want to create a society where that isn't necessary anymore now it, it, and I guess you know it, when it came to that thing with cleaning, I realized there was a lot of times when I would take into account. I'd be like, you know, do I really need this stuff? Is this thing is this thing something I'm going to use a lot? You know, um, and that's uh, something further that disarmed that with me was my study about uh, how consumerism was kind of engineered uh, that we were manipulated in a lot of ways uh, by the system to get mm-hmm. to that, you know. Have you ever watched uh, the Century of Self the BBC documentary?
2: Oh my gosh, we just watched that about I want to say like 3 weeks ago and I loved it. It was really good.
1: Yeah, I thought that, you know, somebody doing what you're doing would appreciate it. I just it, uh, the way that they they talked to Edward Bernays, you know, and went beyond just the issue of advertising and went into now we're going to brainwash people to buy stuff they don't even need. You know, uh, and and convince them that their freedom is their ability to buy stuff that they don't need, and it, it's it's interesting because when we talk about this, you know, people tend to freak out, like you know, like oh, you want to take my stuff? I'm like, no, I, I want to liberate you from the idea that you need all of it because you really don't.
2: <laughs> no, it's so true, and it's really been fascinating uh, for me since the uh, the New York Times article came out. We've been doing we've been on a lot of different you know radio shows and TV and things like that. But people have really latched on to um, what what I've been doing. It's called the 100 Thing Challenge, where basically I own less than 100 personal things. And the idea isn't that you have to own, you know, 100 things. The idea is, you know, take a look at what's in your life. What do you own? Does it bring you joy? Do you really need it? And, and can you let go of some of your stuff? I think people have really latched on to that concept because so many people are drowning in stuff. Like they have homes filled with junk and they don't know what to do with it, but yet they keep going to the mall to really kind of, I think, find happiness and it's really not working out so well for people.
1: Have you ever watched the story of stuff, the little brief 20 minute documentary?
2: Yeah, it's fantastic. I just read uh, Annie's book as well and I highly recommend the book. It's just, a really awesome summary of how stuff is literally, like, killing us in a lot of ways and the planet. So it's a nice, uh, I think, introduction to the topic.
1: Now, this goes beyond even just the uh, the issue of the junk that you have in your house. It's also a matter of, like, your residual monthly income. This is something mm-hmm. that I said to myself, another thing I went over a long time ago, I, a friend of mine, back when I was a bachelor, he and I were, you know, walking over a frozen lake one day. Uh, just to go home because we would we would do so to you know bring our groceries back and mm-hmm. uh, because we didn't live, we didn't have a car you know we mm-hmm. didn't eat everything was close by and uh, I said you know I refuse to be a slave to my stuff and and he was like what do you mean it was like well my brother for example often works seven days a week voluntary overtime he can't do anything else he has money but he doesn't have any time. He's forever working. And I asked him, why do you need to do this? He's like, well, I have a car payment. I have a phone payment. I have, you know, meaning a cell phone. Um, and uh, people are never satisfied with just a basic cell phone. They've got to have all these features. And then he's you know, like, i got a house payment. And you end up with uh, this huge residual monthly uh, requirement.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I-, I looked at that and how it paralyzed his life. And, you know, like you and you talked about car payments and all of the uh, requirements for owning a car you really added up the math there i mean could you share that with my listeners
2: oh sure um (laughs) i mean it's just so funny to me because like you know at one point we owned two cars and we were living in davis california which is literally like the biking capital of, of the u.s um you know it has really good biking infrastructure yet we were driving everywhere and probably shelling out between five to $800 a month when we had two cars. And that's a lot of cash. The average American pays $8,000 a year for one vehicle. So if you can even go car light, that's an incredible savings. And I think in a lot of ways you're going to be healthier by driving less because you're going to be walking and biking and um I think, you know, your social life will be improved as well, at least it, it has for me. But, yeah, when we really started examining our finances, we were like, wow, the cars need to go. <laughs> and,
0: right.
2: uh, you know, if by selling the cars, we were able to pay off our debt a lot quicker because we took that 500 to $800 a month figure and put that toward all my student loans that I needed to pay off. So it's definitely one way you can reduce your your monthly expenses. Um, I mean, now our, our average expenses, you know, for apartment food, all that are about, you know, 1500 to 1800 a month, and that's for two people. So I think you can live really cheap and well and be happy, and I think that's uh, important for people to remember. You don't need a big house to live well or a car.
1: Right, and that's Particularly when when we talk about cars, I remember, for example, all of my friends would would buy cars that get them financed, and then right around the time they were paid off, it was time to get a new car. Mm -hmm. You know, you think to yourself, well, I'm just going to buy this, and I'm going to have a car, and it just never seems to work out that way. You know, I actually, I mean, my friend just paid off his, and like three months ago, and then unfortunately, he was out in a storm, hydroplaned it into a wall. Has no car. there's nothing to show for, for any of that. And he hates it. And I,
0: I'm
3: very
1: hesitant now. He's like, I'm not doing that again. I'm just going to go ahead and buy something outright. And, you know, yes, it'll probably not be as good, but yeah, you know, that's the thing. is like you either, you either have to pay for it all, you know, every month or you have to pay for it all up front or you pay for it over time because anything that you buy that isn't going to come off the lot is going to break down constantly anyway. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: I don't think people recognize the residual costs that come into all of that. And it, it, I know that you know. For me personally, I don't even have a driver's license, and the reason why is because <laughs> I managed to live near my work all the time. And one of the things that actually came brought that to my attention was I've seen so many of my friends whose lives would not just be inconvenienced, their lives would turn upside down if their car broke down, and mm-hmm. they couldn't afford to pay it for some reason, like. You know, you, your car breaks down, and then you lose your job, and then you lose your money, so therefore you can't afford to fix your car. And then, you you know, after a while, then, you can't afford to pay your rent or house payment, then you lose your house. You lose everything. We've, we've designed our society in such a way that an automobile is not a luxury. It's this thing that is absolutely required. You, and with the economy going in the direction that it's going, it's harder to find a job. So, you know, it's, it's it, it really is designed in such a way that you really – it's very difficult for you to – not own a car, and that's I, my hats off to you definitely for doing that. I, I know you also you wrote you wrote an ebook uh, that mm-hmm. I believe I also have linked in my show link uh, for those of you who'd like to check it out. Would you tell me about the the ebook and the the different techniques that you describe on how to get a car out of your life as far as things like job and uh, shopping?
2: Sure, uh, simply car free really tells kind of our you know story about getting to the point where we're car free, and it also offers a lot of tips and tools for people who want to do things like grocery shopping by bike or like some strategies to sell your car and like it goes over like the savings you can reap from going car free and things like that. Um, So, you know, it was a good book for me to write because I learned a lot about, you know, new ideas just for myself and kind of getting around town and just kind of, it's been interesting because I get a lot of folks who say, "Well, you know, I can't go car free because you know I live in a rural area or um, because I'm disabled." And of course, like you know, not everyone can go car free per se. But you might be able to go car light, or you can structure your life um, where you don't need a car. So, like you were saying, you moved closer to work, for example, and that's a great strategy to you know be car free. Um, and if you live in a city and are healthy, you really don't need a car. I think it is possible to get around. Um, and if your city, you know, doesn't have bike lanes, well, you know, it's real, I, I just really strongly believe that you have to bug your public officials and really demand that these services are put in place because without community involvement, the infrastructure will not change. So kind of talks about a lot of those issues and um, – Hopefully, you know people have found it valuable
1: so far. Well, no, for sure. That's actually another aspect of the VEAS project is that we design we design cities of the future in such a way that owning an automobile would be far less important because you design everything with the public transport designed into it rather than patched around it. Uh, You design uh, the way you know the different. So the way the the city itself is designed, for example, most things would be walkable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are examples of the the, the basic design of the infrastructure, as you were saying, that that needs to to be there. And we don't really do that. We kind of just build our cities in such a way where we just patch them together. Okay, well now let's let's put up another housing division over here. Let's put up an industrial zone over there. And you don't really think about well, how are these people going to get to their to their shopping? How are they going to get to their job? And we Tend to think that you know you should just design it ahead of time with that in mind, and you know it's that's one of the one of the reasons why I, I you know what brought you on the show is because the notion that you know you can in fact live a life without an automobile, you know it, I think is very foreign to people, and I I don't think they also realize as we just talked about how much their car you know you think you own your car but you but your car really owns you you, you don't really think about it that way but. In a lot of ways, you, you put so much money and effort into it, you're, and maintaining it is a serious reason why you must always have a job all the time, and mm-hmm. its I don't think people recognize that the stuff that they've been conditioned to believe is their freedom is actually how the system keeps you forever working nine to five in a job that you don't necessarily like, uh, taking vacations if you can, uh, mm-hmm. things of that nature. And I guess you said that you know for longer trips maybe you just you just rent a car. Mm-hmm. Is that how you do that? It,
2: yeah, I mean it, it's uh, you know obviously if I could I would love to bike to <laughs> to Northern California to see my parents but that would be a really long long bike ride I wouldn't be opposed to that but so for a weekend trip it makes it hard so you know we either rent a car or we take a tr- a train trip and that's really fun um, but we really. I mean, on average, I'd say we rent a car maybe once every two months. It's not very often. And, you know, again, I really think that if you're living in a city and you're healthy, you can get around by bike. Um, I mean, obviously, like, I just, I think that we can structure our cities where we can, you know, facilitate that a lot a lot better. But, you know, again, it really in requires community involvement, and I don't think there's enough of that in the states.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've been lucky that they have have been starting to install more bike paths here in Michigan just, you know, to make it easier for us because, yes, they say go ahead and drive on the street, but I've, I've never felt very comfortable with that. Yeah. shooting by you, and, of course, they want you to drive in such a way that you can't see them. They're directly behind you. Mm -hmm. So if somebody decides they want to, you know, take you off the road, you're not going to know about it until you're, you know, lying over in the ditch. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, not to say that that happens all the time, but it is something that goes on in my head. But, yeah, I basically have – and my bicycle was my my primary as well, and I have two children, and I have one of those little, you know, carts that you pull behind your bicycle and um, helps me get around. And I can also – all stuff in that, you know, like if I just need to go to the store and buy a little bit of groceries or whatever, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll throw them in that little cart. Um, and uh, I think that in one of you know, like you said that it helps you be, you know, it helps you be healthier because you're obviously you're on a bicycle, and I, I recognize that too. It actually it kind of spoiled my workout because I have a an exercise bike that I use for my cardio,
0: <laughs> and uh,
1: because I started biking everywhere. Recently, it, it's now so easy. I'm going to have to get a new bike because I can't turn up the resistance. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, no. But uh, in any case, though, uh, it, it's, it, it definitely has helped me. And overall, my my general health is better. And, and I don't think people realize that. Actually, I've, one of the things a friend of mine told me not long ago was that uh, in Cuba, uh, when we did the oil embargo against them, Mm-hmm. their whole community their whole country got together and said okay well let's modify our lifestyle so that we don't need oil and much more bicycles much more walking and because of that uh the the overall health of people in cuba you know seriously got better and mm-hmm. much more fit much and then ironically much more happy and that's it's it's interesting because you know, you would think that taking people's oil away would be this thing that would, you know, really harm them. And it did cause some problems. Um, But that's another thing that we, you know, when it comes to the service industry in regards to automobiles and how everything just is designed to break down in the first place, this is something that we talk about in Zeitgeist Addendum, you know, just the planned obsolescence.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, One of the things that came up when we had a, I had an expert on electric cars on my show a while ago, and he talked about the fact that he's owned the same electric car for seven years He's never had to do anything to it except for change the tires, and you know, because they don't have – the electric motor is just a lot more efficient, and it doesn't have a bunch of moving parts that are, you know, designed really to, you know, to be broken apart. Um, Mm. And because – and that, in addition to other things, is one of the major reasons that the auto industry was like, we can't have this, and they, you know, they killed the electric car for a while – because the entire service industry would crash if we all started using those electric cars that go for years and years and years without having anything needed to be done to them. Now they have certain limitations, you know, but a lot of that, those limitations are reinforced by pat- battery patents owned by oil companies. Texaco bought the battery patent, for example, that would have allowed the EV1 car to go for 500 miles, mm-hmm. and that's that's an example of uh, why, you know. People, I don't think people realize the the fact that one of the reasons that we have this situation with these automobiles doing what they're doing to our lives is because of the fact that it's more profitable for the people on top to be doing it that way. And we can get out of it obviously with our own bodies, which I think is great. People do need to get up, mm-hmm. need to get off their derriers and get out there and start doing things. And it, it does make your life a heck of a lot better. I mean, I realize that because I, Pretty much uh, I'm a stay-at-home father. I rent rooms mm-hmm. to workers to make my own money uh, mm-hmm. so I don't really have to get out and work uh, and I do have just about enough to keep everything going and I actually found that that was good but I also found that you know my, my stress level would go up slowly and you know just from not getting out enough because obviously I have to stay at home with the kids all the time and mm-hmm. I started working out and that improved it a hundredfold. You know I started running on the bike, I started doing all uh-huh. kinds of stuff and then you just become overall generally happier. Uh, you know, for health reasons alone that you may not even recognize right away.
2: Yeah, so so true. Um, Exercise is so important. It's amazing, like, at least for me, like, my mood differences if I work out versus if I don't. So it's it's important. And if you can get exercise along with your daily commute, then you kind of – it's a time-saving thing as well,
1: <laughs> right? And and then that's also the motivator because one of the things that always kills you when you're sitting on an exercise bike doing cardio is, man, oh god, I don't want to do this. I'm sweating, I want to go do some math. but you know, it's like, hey, I, I need to get to work. I better jump on this bike. You know, you don't even think about it at that point. Yeah,
2: um, for
1: sure. So now the the process involved with determining, though, I mean, at least you know, to tell your own personal story. Uh, the idea of getting your personal belongings down to 100 items,
0: mm-hmm.
1: how long did that take you? And I mean, with, when you got this started, you know, can you think of any of the things that might have been harder than than some of the other things? And uh, just, to, just kind of elaborate, you know, narrate on what this process was like for you when you got it started and where you are now.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, like I was saying, we, I guess we probably started downsizing about five years ago, and it wasn't until, like, maybe two or three years ago that we really, like, went full steam ahead and started shedding stuff more quickly. But, you know, at one time we were in a two-bedroom apartment, and it was packed with stuff. So, like, it took a long time to get rid of it because we didn't want to just throw it out. Our landfills are already clogged, so we wanted to make sure that, our stuff found good homes, so a lot of it went to charity, um, to friends who needed things. Like, we gave couches to a needy family, and we gave our TV away as well. So, like, we didn't really sell a lot of our stuff. I know some of my friends have done the eBay thing, but for me, I just was like, eh, too much work, too much time. I'll just give it away. <laughs> but Get I, out of here
1: right now. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, um uh, what was I gonna say? Oh, so we ended up downsizing to uh, a really small one-bedroom apartment in Sacramento, and um, I discovered at that time I discovered Dave Bruno's 100 Thing Challenge, and you know I still had a lot of stuff, and I was having trouble getting rid of it, and I was like, huh, this would be really cool, just a fun exercise to see like okay, well, what do I really need in my life, and what don't I need? So I just really started tearing down, and um, I discovered that I don't need a lot of clothes. Um, I have really a basic wardrobe that I can mix and match with anything, and I gave away most of my books and to the library. So it's definitely been a process in terms of, like, shedding stuff. I didn't do it overnight.
0: <laughs>
2: um, and I. I think that um, when you have a lot of stuff, like the idea of shedding it all at once can be a little overwhelming. so even if you can get rid of like ten or twenty items a week, it's a start. Um, but as far as like the hardest thing to get rid of, I would definitely say the car um, or cars <laughs> cars are addictive, it's so you know it's easy to just jump in and you know go for a weekend trip or whatever. Um, so that was really difficult to let go of. And it's funny because now I don't miss the car at all. I'm actually much happier without it. I I love walking and biking everywhere. And, you know, like I was saying, we rent a car um, or do kind of car sharing when we actually need one. So um, it's definitely – it was hard to let go of that, but I'm really glad I did. My life's a lot better. So
1: Right. Now, now. – the, what you're talking about, as far as the fact that you only have to rent a car, also kind of proves the Venus Project model that people won't generally need as you know, a car as often as they believe they will. Um, there's a lot of people who've talked about that—that that, you know you could have uh, like a community fleet of cars, you know, mm-hmm. that you use when you need it, and then you bring it back, and then you're done with it, you know. And that way, you know, it's it's not even an issue anymore it, because there are a lot of people—it's they think that their stuff once again liberates them. You got to figure out where you are going to put this thing. One of the things that annie leonard brings up in the story mm-hmm. of stuff is that you know we, we keep buying bigger houses our housing our housing size keeps increasing and it's mm-hmm. because we keep inquiring more and more and more stuff you know in such a way that you once again you, you don't realize how much your stuff is controlling your lifestyle you know that was another aspect we talked about you know and then Venus projects society, absent absence of you know, money and things of that nature ownership of production, and things like that, you end up in a situation where you can travel a lot more. You could probably end up living, you know, I mean, like, for example, if you if you had to pack up all of your stuff in the lifestyle you're living right now, do you think you could pretty much put it in a large suitcase? I mean, how much, I mean, like, obviously you've yeah. got furniture, but.
2: I mean, all my stuff, like, at least my personal stuff, I could probably fit in my backpack, but we, you know, that doesn't include, like, our household stuff, so, like, we have um, – we, we live in a large studio, so we have um, a futon, you know, that we sleep on, and, and it doubles as a couch, and we have a couple chairs, a coffee table, and a kitchen table, and that's it for furniture. It's very simple, mm-hmm. um, and all of it is used. So if I were to move, I would just sell it or give it away. I'm not – like, I don't feel like I need to – take it with me to my next uh, apartment or the next city we choose to live in. So I think it's just, um, I do know, it's interesting because I think in our culture we get very attached to our stuff and I think it's more important to focus on building strong relationships and really getting reconnected to community. And I keep bringing up the community point because at least for me five years ago I was not engaged with my community I didn't know what was going on and that's and by you know volunteering more and just connecting with people I'm so much happier and that sounds very like cliche cheesy but it, it's true like I think you can get a lot of joy from doing advocacy work and helping those who are less fortunate and really I think that's what my lifestyle is all about it's not like you know, I have more free time, but I'm using that free time to help people who are less fortunate. So, I don't know. It's just been kind of a big um, change in lifestyle for me in that sense. You know, actually, that's
1: another aspect of this that I don't think people recognize, and I talk about that is that because one of the things we bring up is that you know, in a, in a future society, we would have more time to do things to help other people. Because one of the aspects they say is, well, we can't help the starving people in Africa. It would require X amount of money and you'd have to add all these people on board. And I generally say to them, I'm like, you know, I would love to go help build a hydroponic farm system to solve poverty in, in Africa. I don't have time. I'm, you know, and I'm shackled to all this stuff I have that I have to maintain. You know, I have to have my nine-to-five job. I have to have all, you know, my car payment and all this other stuff. That's what keeps me from doing these things. You in a minimalist lifestyle, you have far more, that's something you have far more free time, you know, mm-hmm. to do other things. And in your case, you said that you, you work for a charity. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, I volunteer with um, a really cool organization in Portland called Living Yoga, and they provide outreach services to folks who are, who are recovering drug and alcohol addicts, as well as to um, folks who, who are in state prisons, so it's uh, an amazing rehabilitative program for um, a population that um, I think is, is vulnerable in a lot of ways. like. Uh, there's not enough rehabilitative programming in prisons and, you know, eventually 80 to 90% of these folks are going to be released. And so I think really for me, like, the overall point is kind of increasing public safety because a lot of times people will tell me, oh, you're just, you know, what of all those violent prisoners? Why would you want to, you know, work with them or work with that kind of organization? But it's the point of trying to create a safe society for everyone. Um, so anyways, it's, uh, it's really been a cool opportunity for me to work with them.
1: That's actually, you know, something else that's in line with what, what we think about uh, reengineering society is that you, we need to make prisons into rehabilitative um, facilities because the current way that we do things is not really – you're going to have somebody with a really rare character who's going to come out of that situation and be less of a criminal. Uh, it's almost like it's a, a criminal factory is the way we set these things up. It's like we want these people coming back. And that particularly as we privatize more and more prisons, there's so much money that's made in it. It's, uh, I worked for Senator Mike Gravel in his recent campaign for president. I don't know if you remember him, mm-hmm. kind of a fiery man with glasses. And, you
2: know, yeah, I think I, I saw him a few times. <laughs> he's
1: a friend of mine and he, he coined in his book prison industrial complex to go yeah. right alongside military industrial complex. Uh, medical-industrial complex, all of these corporate um, entities that are co- basically colluding to make a more profitable situation. And some people feel that the war on drugs is another aspect of that. And uh, so, yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying. And I guess that the, main, the reason we brought this up, because even that is still relevant, is that the reason you're in this position where you can help those people is because of this lifestyle that you have. I mean, like, think about it. In your previous lifestyle before you started this, would you have had time to get involved in your community or to get involved in this charity work?
2: No, and that's that's where, like, the conflict for me came in because I've always been – I've always considered myself a a feminist, very liberal, and yet I wasn't living by those ideals. I was working for a huge corporation that had a – I thought, a negative impact on people and the planet. Um, and so, like, that's a huge, you know, I wasn't living by my values, and I think it's important to, when you're kind of caught in that situation, to take a step back and think, okay, well, what can I do about this? And so, for me, that that meant a huge um, career transition and really making time and space in my life to, you um, do good work and that meant helping victims of crime and then volunteering on the side. So it was, you know, I was, you know, your typical person caught in that work spend cycle and, you know, I would not have had time to get involved with charities prior. So, um, yeah. <laughs>
1: it's, it's interesting really that it almost, it, sometimes it feels as though, I and mean, this is something else the Century of Self kind of revealed was that, you know, virtually every aspect that we talk about that's wrong with our society was engineered that way in such a way that it makes it difficult for us to affect change. And one serious aspect of that is that, you know, there are people who would like to help more, and they can't. And the system is almost designed in such a way that it paralyzes you. You're, you're unable to, to do that because of all these material things that you've been conditioned to believe that you must have in order to be a success. That's another aspect about this. I talked about this on the other show I did was that, you know, what is a successful person? We've determined that a successful person is somebody who has the 2.5 kids and the two-car garage home and the two cars that are probably brand new and then they sell them and they get new ones and they're forever financing them and they're forever refinancing their homes. You know, they have uh, jet skis. And, and if you think about it, when somebody thinks of something successful, I mean, we had a whole show about it. It was mm-hmm. called Lifesty- you know, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. The notion that my success is entirely based upon my material gain you know, and that was another aspect that we talked about. About it was that these people who have these things, in many cases, are not very happy. Uh, they're, they're miserable. Uh, how many yes. times do you hear about? and I'm not saying all of them are, but you know, like how many times do you hear about these famous celebrities? They're on drugs. They're they're drinking all the time. They're, you know, they're getting involved in all kinds of trouble. You know, if this was the way you're supposed to be living, these are the ones that supposedly have everything that we've been told since kindergarten. We must have to be happy, and they're not happy.
2: Right, and it's interesting because um, the New York Times piece uh, also featured a fellow, I think his name is Rocco, gosh, what's his last name? Well, anyways, he's working on a documentary called Happy, and he's kind of addressing some of those same issues, and I'm looking forward to seeing that when it comes out. But, yeah, it's definitely interesting, and I think um, with with the economy, things are starting to change. People... Are seeing that like material stuff isn't really the road to happiness or for you know better communities, and especially like the growth in just like the simple living minimalist movement has been huge. the number of blogs and resources that are out there, I think is just incredible like um and it's a great way to foster community for me, writing at rowdy kittens like the best part by far has been meeting new friends and in, in engaging that way. It's very rewarding.
1: Now in fact that's a tell us about Rowdy Kittens and what you're doing there.
2: <laughs> well, Rowdy Kittens I started about three years ago as kind of a personal blog to document um, our downsizing journey and for me to just really to start writing more and kind of finding my writing voice. Um, so it's really the growth of the blog is over the last year, and um, I talk about, about a variety of things, from everything to consumerism to how to declutter your life to living a car-free lifestyle. So it kind of touches on a broad uh, array of aspects um, regarding simple living. So.
1: And that's rowdykittens.com, correct? Right. The word rowdy, the word kittens.com.
2: Uh
1: huh. Yeah, actually, you know, and. Uh, Something I I have to jump back a little bit unfortunately. But we were talking about what makes people successful. Now, do you feel you're more successful now as a person than you did before you engaged in this journey of eliminating materialism? Yeah, I
2: I think so. <laughs> I just, you know, I feel a lot better about the life I'm leading. I'm not I'm not perfect, you know, I still have a lot of work to do. Um, I think we're all kind of trying to uh, improve our lives and uh, I think that's a good thing but yeah I mean I guess prior to downsizing I felt somewhat successful but I was so unhappy and I was living a life that you know was deemed good by society but I couldn't figure out what I was missing and I think uh, I finally figured out what that was <laughs> I had too much stuff and too much stress stress in my life so by eliminating those things along with my debt, I'm, I'm better off now. So
1: That was another thing, actually, that I believe was it was either brought up in the article that you were in or it was brought up in a different article that I had read on that same show, was about the fact that people actually get more happiness out of experiences as opposed mm-hmm. to material items.
2: Yeah, Stephanie Rosenblum, um, the gal who wrote the, the Times piece, talked about kind of leisure activities, and, um, you know, if you're going to spend money, what do you want to spend it on, like kind of getting the most happiness from each dollar spent, and most of the time that's on activities. So, for example, we do a lot of um, bike camping on the weekends, and it's inexpensive and a lot of fun, or, you know, maybe you want to go on a week vacation with your family or something like that. Um, Spending money on experiences is – far better than going to the mall and buying a new wardrobe.
1: Yeah, that was uh, the clothing thing. Actually, it clicked into my head when you said that because uh, my, my soon-to-be ex-wife has our entire um, walk-in closet and most of the dressers in the drawers and all that. I have like a single dresser drawer for my clothing. And it's 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 interesting how much clothing people think they need to own and how much of it she never really ever even wears um, and a lot of that comes back to that idea that, you know, like, uh, that Annie Leonard points out in the story mm-hmm. of stuff. And I talked about this earlier. It's like that golden area of arrow of consumption,
0: uh, you know,
1: <coughs> have it contributed to the golden arrow of consumption,
0: uh, then, you know,
1: then I'm not successful. Uh, you know, she talked about it with the, the high heels, you know, how you, you have the thin heels and a thin heel year and the thick heels and a thick heel year and, uh, you know, the, the, the haircuts. It wasn't in Story of Stuff, but that's an example. You know, I need to have the, the, the perfect hair cut. You know, I have to have yeah. all these other things, or, I, or there's something wrong with me. And another thing we talked about in that is that that materialist attitude has even went, found its way into video games. For mm-hmm. People who play online video games. I remember very distinctly somebody, for example, I was in a debate with them about something during while I was playing a video game, and they were like, well, look at you. You know, your gear is all you know, like green, which is the lowest rank for gear. You know, why should anybody be listening to you? Your gear is terrible, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, and I'm just thinking to myself, wow, you know, this guy is essentially like those kids in high school telling me that I'm nothing because I'm not wearing Reeboks. Wow,
2: that's incredible in the cyber world. (laughs)
1: Yes, it, it exists in the cyber world too. And it's the other thing about it is that we were talking about was the fact that people find themselves wanting to work in these video games. And if video games don't have enough work, then they don't want to play them. Um, you know, like the first one of those video games I got into, you know, you can have your character ready to go in about two weeks, and then you could just go play the game. And instead now it's almost as though the video game, the virtual world, has tapped into that, and now they realize that that is dissatisfying for most of our culture that's been brainwashed to think they should be working all the time. So you end up having these people who will just sit around doing repetitive tasks for hours and hours and hours and hours, and, hours and then, they think that that earns them some higher state, you know, higher state of existence within the society of even the virtual world, um, mm-hmm. and that's, it's its really frightening to me that people don't recognize that this is their slavery. The things that they have been told are what's supposed to be setting them free are actually the things that have caused, you know, the majority of their stress, that have caused the majority of the, the, their lack of free time. Um, yeah, I'm going to bring this up, and I, I told this story before, but I want to share it with you, but... Mm-hmm. I lived with a fellow back in my bachelor days. I just rented a room from him and I worked as much as I needed to, and then spent the rest of my time you know doing things I wanted to do and and he worked for a big company uh I think it was like one of the energy companies, but he was working constantly and he had a lot of toys. he had a nice new car, a nice new truck, and a really big house and mm-hmm. this other stuff and he didn't but he was never happy he'd come home and his entire family would kind of disappear because they didn't want to be around him when he got off work. So uh, He was just miserable all the time. And at one point he resented my lifestyle so much. I mean, I, I was paying all my bills you know, that was the problem that he threw me out of his house because he decided that I was a loser. And I asked him why I felt that way. And he was like, well, you know, you work only what you have to and no more. And I'm like, man, I'm like in my early 20s, I'm a bachelor, I, you know, my bills are paid, why, why do you even care about any of this? I don't understand. You know, and he was so offended by the fact that I, lived, that I lived the way I did and that I wasn't enslaved to those things, that I did have more free time. There were a lot of times there were things that he wanted to do that I was doing, you know, different activities and such that I was mm-hmm. participating in. And he hated that he couldn't go do them. And so he ended up lashing out at me about it. And that's it's it's really sad, you know, that that people live that way because, you know, he thinks that he's doing what needs to be done to be successful. Remember, you know, successful. That word successful. You know, and he compared his lifestyle to mine and you know, after I moved out of his home, you know, I, I ended up sending him an email back and I told him, I'm like, Yes, you do have a lot more toys, but you are never happy. Nobody in your life or around you is happy. I don't I don't see how you feel that you are so successful and I'm a loser, because at the end of the day, I'm enjoying my life. At the end of the day, you have basically given your life entirely over to consumerism and the people you work for, and you're miserable. So which one of us is winning the game here? Which one of, if there is a winner and a loser, which one is it? Is it the happy one or the unhappy
2: one? Wow, that's so that's so sad. <laughs> I feel bad for him. But yeah, it's, um, I know for me, when I was in the kind of work spend cycle. You know, I I was unhappy and grouchy a lot, and you know, not that it's an excuse for your friend's behavior, but just kind of, I think, in general.
1: Well, he you know, eventually overcame it, thankfully. But yeah. Oh, that's. And, and <laughs> yeah, I actually talk see, again see, now. He yeah. for all yeah. that. So please that's continue. Um, it's
2: just so easy to get stressed out when when you're in that place and um can lash out at others. So, um, luckily, I I was never that bad. But
1: really, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, you know, while you think about it, you know, there was a lot of aspects to what we determined to be success, that I I don't know that people recognize are kind of designed into the system to ensure that you have contributed to as much as possible to that golden era of consumption. Ah, you know, um, and like even when you look into, for example, education, uh, there was a really good documentary called Higher Learning. Or, I'm sorry, no, if declining by degrees. Higher Education at Risk. It's a PBS mm-hmm. documentary. And they went in to talk about how teachers are not even paid more for being good teachers in college. And in fact, if you fail too many people, you can be fired for it no matter how badly these students are performing. And that's why college ends up getting this reputation for people just kind of messing around and, you know, partying all the time, because it's just, it's a diploma mill. You're just basically, you're set you're set up, you go in there, and they, because they make more money from, tuition than they do from you know from anything else but you as a professor if you want to get ahead you actually get ahead via research papers and things that have nothing to do with being a good teacher Mm -hmm. and so it's just basically you end up getting this education but it's not even necessarily a very good one and then you you get out of it and then you that's another thing is a lot of people they they get out of college and they're told that that means they're going to go get a job and, and then they find out that education didn't really open up any doors for them in fact Their jobs may have been outsourced, eliminated, automated. You never know. Um,
2: Uh, It's it's an interesting topic, and um, Derek Jensen's written a book kind of on the uh, educational system. I can't remember the name. I think it's called Walking on Water. I could be wrong, but it's um, a really fascinating kind of exploration of his experience teaching, you know, college-aged kids and um, kind of rethinking the educational system as a whole. But, yeah, I – I don't know. I, I feel really lucky to have gone to college and had that opportunity. And in some ways, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily helped my career, but at the same time, I know that it helped shift my mindset um, coming in out of high school. You know, I didn't have a clue about, you know, kind of history in general or, for example, like with what women's studies was and things like that. So I do think in some ways, if you get connected to the right people in college, it can make a huge difference.
1: Well, and I'm not saying that education as a whole is bad by any means. It was just kind of a question of that. I've seen so many people that they they kind of, they give up their lives for it. And in many cases, Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily for fields that they actually care about or enjoy. Mm -hmm. And it makes them so miserable. And, And then they get out into the world and now they're hopefully getting the job that they went to school for. And if they did, if it wasn't something that they loved or cared about, you know, they they may be more monetarily successful, but these people are not successful in the happiness ideal.
2: Yeah. Um, like you were talking about kind of how your stuff ends up um, owning you. Right. <laughs> you know, with so many folks exiting college now are so deep in debt that they end up in these jobs that they hate because they have to pay their student loans. So. I think that's another huge um, problem.
1: <laughs> no, it is. And uh, that's another aspect of how the system's just kind of designed to forever keep you turning the hamster wheel. Um, and that's it, so the, the, the thing is, though, is that you managed to find a way to find something that you, I guess, enjoy doing more, and it also freed up your time to be able to do things that you absolutely enjoy more.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's where I, I, I rate your success at that point, at least on my personal meter, <laughs> far higher and these people who are supposedly Fortune 400 or 500 or whatever who are, you know, who are shooting themselves or, you know, getting high on cocaine or any number of the other things that these people who are supposedly doing so much better than us are doing, yet their lives are withering away before them. And that's another aspect of that that I said in the last show, that I said, you know, how many people do you know who on their deathbed go, man, I I really wish I had spent more time at work? (laughs) Yes,
2: Gosh, I should have answered that last email, you know. Like, you got to step away and kind of reevaluate where you're at, and I think that's really the key. And for me, it was doing a lot of reading and uh, talking with my partner, and it made a huge difference, so. Well,
1: that was another thing, actually, that came up during the show, and I don't know if you're familiar with Daniel Pink's work about what motivates us.
2: Um, oh, yeah, he's fantastic.
1: Right, and he talked about, like, it was another thing, is that you were in a position now to do that charity work that people – keep claiming we're never going to find anybody to do, and you actually want to do it. And it's not because you're getting paid for it. And, in fact, in order to be able to do it, you have less money in your lifestyle than you would otherwise. And But you find yourself more enriched and more motivated to do that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, obviously, we've already been over the fact that you're in a position to do the work solely because of your lifestyle. You, know, you move on beyond that into the fact that you know, what? You know, at the end of the day, you feel far more satisfied, I presume, working with these prisoners or the, the other people that you're working with than you ever did at a day at work at your previous job. Is that correct?
2: Well, I, I think it, it depends on which job. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, yeah, like right now for living with yoga, it's, um, I haven't worked with prisoners directly yet. I've been doing a lot of office work for them, which I still find fulfilling, and I'm hoping I can... Uh, do their next teacher training so that I can actually get into the prisons and and work with like inmates and such. But yeah, I mean, at least um, for me, when I was in the investment management industry, I definitely didn't feel fulfilled. But when I transitioned into social service-based work and um, was doing, um, for example, like counseling with domestic violence and rape victims, I found that very fulfilling and it's definitely a needed service for, for folks. But, you know, I had gotten really burned out of that field. And that's part of the reason I transitioned out and I'm am, am doing, you know, writing and web design now. So, um, yeah, it's definitely getting out of the investment management world was, um, very important for me and <laughs> my own sanity. So, Yep.
1: That's, it sounds as though you're definitely a lot happier now. Uh, sure. And, and it's, <laughs> Uh, basically, now we, we've been over a lot during the course of this broadcast, and I, I want to thank you very much for being on. And um, yeah, I, absolutely, uh, feel free to plug you know any website or uh, anything that it is that you're doing because uh, I, you don't end up on B Radio if unless I like what it is that you're doing and I want to promote it. So, um, Thank
2: you for, for the opportunity, I appreciate it.
1: No, Van, thank you for coming on. Now, I mean, uh, we've still got a few minutes left. But I just uh, wanted to say, you know, go ahead and tell the listeners, where can they learn about what it is that you've been doing, you know, uh, and how can they partake in this? Because I think it, it definitely, and I'm already kind of living that way, and I, I like it that way, obviously. Where can they learn more about the actual nuts and bolts of getting this, this done in their own lives?
2: Well, you can visit my blog rowdykittens.com and um, that's kind of my hub on the internet. So it's the place to connect with me um, and read my stuff. You can find a link to my ebook Simply Car Free there and I'm also launching my second ebook uh, it's called Smalltopia, A Practical Guide to Working for Yourself on August 31st. So, excellent, excellent. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about the book, um, and I hope it will be well received. So if folks are interested in that, they can head over to Rowdy Kittens and sign up for um, my e- email list for uh, like a pre-launch discount. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Well, tell me a little bit about Smalltopia then, what what, what? What is
2: that well, going to be about, really? It's um, basically Smalltopia is um, divided into three sections. Um, the first is kind of on, like, work philosophy and talks about simple living. The second portion of the book covers kind of nuts and bolts of what you need to get a very small business started. And then the third part um, is all case studies from really awesome blogging friends and small business owners. So it really the book is... Um, geared to people who want to get out of the rat race and give them a lot of tips and tools to do so.
1: Excellent, excellent. Well, yeah, when the time comes for that, I'll definitely have to check that out. Uh, so now have you thought of any other projects that you may be coming up with after that or are you going to be resting your laurels for a little while?
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm actually um, I'm. I'm going to be working hopefully on a print book. Um, I just signed on with a literary agent and so... I'm kind of working on my proposal, and then, um, you know, the process of shopping that around to different publishers, hopefully someone will pick it up, but the general topic right now is going to be about happiness and uh, interweaving uh, simple living into that, so it should be a really fun project.
1: (laughs) Excellent, you know, and you, just for your own uh, look, you know, if for some reason you have trouble finding a publisher. You might even want to start off on Lulu. dot com. I don't know if you've investigated them or not, but ah.
2: Uh, yeah, they're a really awesome resource. So if you know worst case scenario, no one wants to pick up my book, I'll definitely you know self publish it. So. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, we have
1: ah actually had an author, uh, Douglas Millet, He's a guy who works with NASA, and he has a book about space travel, and he uses Lulu. dot com. So. Cool. Um, but anyway. Uh, once again, um, I want to thank you for coming on, Tammy. Uh, it, it been, it's been a great show, and uh, I apologize for having to bump it back a little bit a half hour, and it was great That's to, you know,
2: perfect.
1: it's definitely worth getting up earlier than I usually do.
2: <laughs> well, I really, thank you again. You know, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. I think you're doing really cool stuff, and I'm definitely going to read more about the Venus Project. From what I had read uh, yesterday and early this morning, it's Definitely fascinating, and I think um, adds a lot of value to the world. <laughs>
1: Excellent. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. And um, If you ever, you know, like I said, you can, you can check out Zeitgeist Addendum for free online. Uh, you can just Google Zeitgeist Addendum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that movie talks a lot about the Vetus Project. Uh, some aspects of it are, you know, they kind of go off into different directions, but for the most part, it, that's pretty much what it talks about and why we have to, as a, as a society, we need to move forward and go beyond some of the the paradigms that we're stuck in right now, not just because of a matter of it's probably a good idea and it'll make us happier, but because the the planet is not really going to be able to put up with us, you know, doing as Andy Leonard, you know, talks about the the linear consumption cycle on a planet with finite resources is not going to be able to go on forever.
2: Right.
1: And so we, we talk about, you know, redesigning society in such a way that we don't have to do that. And there are no more linear cycles. We try to move towards, uh, closed loops. We have a a product, we produce the product, and then we use the product as long as possible, and we immediately recycle the product. From the beginning, that's how everything is designed, as opposed to, well, now we've made all this junk. Let's figure out how we can hopefully minimize its impact on the environment. Mm -hmm. Um, So, thanks again, Tammy. We're down to three minutes. Um, uh, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I do have my donation widget up for the next month. Um, Thank you, you know, please visit v-radio.org, v-radio.org. There you can check out the archives of my show, uh, lots more shows about sustainable living, uh, lots of interviews with filmmakers who've made documentary films about the subjects that we've been discussing. And uh, also uh, you can hear a lot more about Jacques Fresco and the Vetus Project there and the various shows that I did on that subject about redesigning the culture you know, the culture that mankind lives in for the betterment of everyone in, you know, in an egalitarian fashion. Uh, thanks again, Tammy. And, uh, you know, did you have any closing words in the last two minutes?
2: Um, no, just thank you so much. It was great being on the show, and I wish you all the best. And, um, yeah, thank you. Appreciate excellent,
1: it. Excellent. I'll probably talk to you a little bit off the air after the show's over, if that's okay with you.
2: Yeah, Perfect.
1: Okay. Well, everybody, uh, thanks again for tuning in. I'm going to go ahead and leave you with some words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows.
3: This is Roxanne Meadows.
1: And this is Jacques Fresco.
3: And you're listening to B radio